Welcome to episode 128 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington, coming to you from the newsroom at uh, Channel 10 in Sydney. And with us, as always, the Professor Peter Van Onselen, having had both ears well chewed off by the big jobs stomach. <laughs> it's, it's not even a two-day summit, Hugh. I, looking at the program, it wraps up at 2 o'clock Friday, which is today as we're recording, which means that it's a day and a half job summit. Giving rise then to the uh, Friday night or late afternoon spectacular of all the cars rolling up to Canberra Airport and everyone trying to get the hell out of Dodge as fast as they can. It's uh, it's quite a sight sometimes. One of those rare moments where you'd rather be an ordinary Qantas Club member than a Chairman's Lounge member because the Chairman's Lounge will be packed with all these high flyers as they uh, enjoy a sip of red wine before boarding their plane out of there. But they'll have nothing left to say to each other because they've spent themselves. Or perhaps perhaps they've got all those things that they uh, they didn't want to say, that they culled out of their speeches. Well, hopefully they can talk to each other, Hugh, because yeah, with the way Qantas is going, they might be at that lounge for a very long time and then they've got to try to find their bags over the coming weeks and anyway who knows it could be an absolute nightmare <laughs> yeah but you know the fact is that they have been talking to each other so that's that's the upside now this is obviously one of the first i suppose spectacles that the albanese government has put on to show that they can in the style of hawk bring people together and maybe talk about some significant reforms did it amount to a great deal we'll go through the actual specifics of stuff that came out but mm. as the overall sense of it oh look uh, look uh, I've been critical of the job summit from the get-go before it even started, mostly because my criticism is that it's too targeted and I wanted to see a wider economic summit more akin to what Bob Hawke did after winning the 83 election. And then I would also then, when it comes to specifics, like to see a tax summit ahead of a job summit, for example. So we can get into some of that later. But having said that, having been a naysayer before it began, I think that there's been some positives to come out of it. Whether or not it leads to positive policy change is a whole other matter. But I have been impressed at the level of collegiality in the room and, and the fact that business and unions are working surprisingly well rhetorically together. And that started before the summit even began with Jennifer Westercott and Sally McManus appearing on Insiders on the ABC with David Spears and, and being surprisingly collegial and they put out a joint press release and all the rest of it. So I'm impressed by that alone. But then I also think it's good that they're talking about things like gender in the workplace and the need to find mechanisms to get more women into work. And they're talking about the need for skilled immigration to help with, um, you know, if you like black spots in the economy where, we're, where we've got shortages on that front. It's good that they're doing all of that. But to answer your question, does that ultimately lead to anything tangible? There's a couple of tangible things that have come out of the summit already. But those big ticket items are not the ones that have, as of yet, been tangibly addressed. But the fact that they're acknowledging with almost universal agreement that something has to be done in that space suggests to me that government will have to act uh, and we'll see what happens. But of course, how it travels through the parliament is its own debate because the Liberals aren't, aren't there. The Nationals are there, but uh, you know, the Liberals aren't. You'll get onto that maybe a little bit, but on, on the subject of women, it's interesting that what came out of it, uh, I mean, this has been reported previously, but that in terms of female economic opportunity, Australia ranks 16th in the world. We're ahead of Serbia, you'll be happy to hear, but only by two <laughs> uh, measures. Wow. But we, we trail Poland and a range of other countries, and, of course, the Nordic countries are, are way up front. So the big, broad issues were, I guess, around industrial relations. Talk about things like uh, childcare was a big issue and, and immigration. Yep. So that Let, let's go through, if you like, the... Industrial relations, this multi-enterprise bargaining, it's something the unions have been pushing for, that industry has been concerned that it, it, it creates greater power for unions to 
call on strike action that affects whole sectors of, of society. So that was a, a bit of a win for the, for the unions. I've got a, a view on this. I, I feel like people are, uh, to a, an extent, missing the point on this. I, I, I'm, in broad terms, in favour of multi-employer bargaining as long as it only applies to smaller organisations. And that's where I want to see the fine detail of what ultimately gets legislatively put forward by Tony Burke as the IR minister. Because it it works like this. It's an interesting area. At the moment, you either have an enterprise bargaining agreement as an employer-employee, or you operate under the award. And bigger organisations often have EBAs, and they have them because they can have the back and forth between the employer and the employees and come up with something that hopefully is mutually satisfactory, but doesn't follow the award. Now, there are provisions to try to ensure that it doesn't undercut the award, but it, it's, a, it's an opportunity to, for example, offload smoko breaks that might be in the award, but get a slight bump in, in salaries or other conditions in the EPA. That's the theory of it. And it works as well as it works. There's deficiencies, but it is what it is, right? The reason that multi-employer bargaining is on the table is because if you're a small business and you don't really have an HR department, you can't really do an EBA because it's costly and you're not in a position to be able to have that kind of negotiating structure. So you are forced to just live off the award. Now, the award can sometimes be onerous. If you run the kind of small business where it doesn't really work to have some of those conditions in the award, you might like to trade them away the way that a bigger business would with an EBA for other conditions, but you can't do it because you're too small a company. So the, or too small a business. The reason small business supports this, even though bigger businesses are worried about it, is because they like the idea that you can get a whole bunch of small businesses together with a whole bunch of employees as well. So multiple employers and multiple employees and do a bigger deal, which is a bit like an EBA, which you can only do in one organization at the moment. You can't do it across organizations, but you therefore can. And small businesses can therefore have outcomes as long as they're all like-for-like small businesses that work for everyone. They work for the business and they also work for the employees. It makes sense, okay? The devil in the detail that I'm waiting on is how big a business will this apply to? And that's what the industry is concerned about. That's why you hear people like Innes Willox talking about this as a concern. Because if labor is trying to, if you like, secretly use this and say, well, small business likes it, but then apply it to businesses up to, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five hundred, all of a sudden that changes the game. And that does become a concern that employers rightly have about union power and the ability to, to you know, protest and strike almost potentially across different industries. So that's the real debate here is how big a businesses will it apply to? And then we have a discussion about whether that's appropriate or inappropriate. Where does the productivity argument come into that? Well, I think that you improve productivity if it is done with a whole bunch of small businesses in a way that employers and employees are satisfied with. So for example, if I'm running a busy coffee shop, right, and it's a problem for me as a small operator to have award conditions that allow for every couple of hours a particular break of a certain amount of time, I want to be able to knock that out because I I need someone operating the coffee machine and, and this makes that not possible. I want to be able to do a deal with a whole bunch of other small businesses to say, you know what, we'll pay you a little bit extra per hour, but you lose that break and you can have the break later or not at all, but we compensate you somehow. If the employee says that's great because I get more money and I don't need the break, and if the employer says, well, that's great because now we've got a more productive workforce and we're not going to have to sort of virtually shut down at particular moments, including right on lunchtime, which is when people are turning up 
to get their coffees from us, then everyone's happy. But the issue becomes, does it apply to bigger businesses who are in a position to have EBAs within their own organization? Because if that happens, then all of a sudden, unions can get together across industries, across organizations, and actually curtail productivity with what they demand from the employer side of things. So that's where the, there's the balance in, in how this ultimately gets structured. It, it, size matters, Hugh, when it comes to this particular debate. And so childcare is another one that's come up. There are a lot of arguments about uh, uh, the need to liberate women into the into the workforce, get the full value out of women. Some fantastic, fantastic speech from Danielle Woods from the um, Grattan Institute with a uh, what will become a famous line saying that if women's participation was a vast quantity of iron ore, then governments would be falling over themselves to subsidise businesses to, to extract it. Now, so one of the arguments being is that the extra childcare provisions which the government has offered up from the 1st of July next year should be brought forward to the 1st of January so that people can plan an entire year with it. The government has knocked that on the head saying that basically there's no money in the kitty for it. Daniel Wood says that's a lost opportunity. Leaving aside the issue of if they did do it from January, where are all the staff going to come from, where are the facilities going to come from, where, what do you think we learnt about the central nature of childcare to the entire workings of our economy, to the improvements that we would look to have in the economy, and also the benefits that we would hope to be able to deliver to, to Australian women. Well, ch- childcare and greater accessibility to it and affordability and, and, and all sorts of elements attached to how it's provided is absolutely essential to improved productivity in the workforce and absolutely in, essential in particular to more female participation in the workforce. Whether we like it or not, limits on childcare create gender limits on female work participation. So it's a throwback to the yesteryear reality that women do more of the caring than men. That has changed, but it hasn't changed enough such that it's co-equal between men and women by any stretch. So it, it's an area that is very important if you want to have more women in the workplace. Um, I mean, my wife's at the Job Summit as well, representing Chartered Accountants as their CEO, and she's talking about women uh, in the workplace and the need to try to you know, find mechanisms that government can support to ensure that we can have more women in the workplace. The same thing goes, by the way, they're, they're talking about older Australians as well. Uh, and there's also skill shortages with white collar employees, not just blue collar employees. And that's something that I've heard her banging on about which I know they're talking about at the at the job summit as well. So it, it's across these industries, but whether it's white collar, whether it's older workers, or whether it's women, the government has an expensive activist role to play to try to boost productivity by boosting those areas of the workforce. And of course, to hear the government say, well, we don't have the money to do that, Sometimes you've got to spend money to make money. We hear that in business all the time. And this is one of those examples if done properly, where the government's spending money will make it money on the tax collection side, on the revenue side, because boosts in female participation in the workforce, allowing older Australians to get back into the workforce to fill skills gaps. These moves not only improve productivity more generally in the workforce, but they bring in more taxation collections for the government. It's as simple as that. But not immediately, though. That's, that's the difficulty, isn't it? Exactly. And I was about to get to that. This is the problem with modern politics. The cost is an outlay early and the benefit is medium to long term. And what does that mean? Well, that means that if you're a politician who's looking at the next election, 
uh, or the even the election after that. A long-term politician who looks two elections ahead, well, that's still only six years, uh, and these benefits can sometimes take a lot longer than that to really flow into the economy, and, and that is what makes it a political pressure point if the money has to be spent now, but the return is not felt for a long time. So the insight that we get out of that is that uh, with Chalmers as treasurer and Katie Gallagher as finance minister and obviously Albanese overseeing the whole thing, it's not pure policy that they're looking at. They really want to show that they're capable of handling a budget. They've got this October, it's just a few weeks away, whether you call it a mini budget or a full budget, their first statement as to what they're going to do and that their great intention is to not show a blowout certainly not one that they can't blame on the previous government. Would that be a fair assessment of the politics of it? Yeah, I think it is a fair assessment. I think it's unfortunate, though, because you know, even politically, if there is one moment in time where you can allow a blowout and do a whole bunch of things, it's probably shortly after you get into government, but not if you've run a small target campaign where you've suggested that there's going to be minimal change on fronts X, Y, and Z. And that is the kind of campaign they ran because they didn't want to mirror Bill Shorten's 2019 campaign where there were huge policy differences between the two sides of politics and it ended up costing Labor the election. So having wedded themselves to a small target strategy that they described when they were in opposition as a smart target strategy privately because they felt that it was clever not to make themselves a big target, now that they're in government, that small target strategy has unintended consequences. And one of them is that when you have a summit like this, where there is a call for the budget to do more for long-term benefit, structural benefit to the economy, uh, they don't really have the political capital to do it or the political imperative to do it. And you're right, Jim Chalmers, to the extent there'll be budget blowouts, if there are, he will have to try and blame them on the previous government with what he inherited, rather than be seen to be an incoming Labor government that's suddenly spending even more. Okay, so there's migration to talk about. Those numbers are going up. Uh, the fact, of course, the opposition, apart from David Littleproud, weren't there. Uh, we've got a few things to talk about. I'll take a quick break. Back in just a second. You're listening to episode 128 of uh, The Professor and the Hack. Uh, I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and the Professor, of course, Peter Van Onselen. And we've talked so much in these podcasts in recent times of just politics. And now we're talking about a, a bunch of policies. And uh, sometimes I can seem a little dull, I suppose, the, the actual business of government and what it changes. An announcement that's just been made from uh, Claire O'Neill, who's the Home Affairs Minister, on skilled migration. So these numbers, to no one's great surprise, well foreshadowed, are going to increase the cap, rising to 195,000 this financial year. This has been essentially, there's been no hostility to this really by the people at the job summit. There may be some externally about people who worry in the long term about migration numbers, etc. But this seems like um, two elements. One is that it's a higher number. The second thing is, is that they want to move from uh, temporary workers who come in, bring their skills, and then have to go to a longer-form thing, so essentially inviting them to stay on. What's the thinking behind this, and does it work? What it does, skilled migration, I mean, it's always been, or it's long been a thing in Australia that we have, we're a high-migration country, and within that quotient of, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of Australians we're bringing in, uh, or new Australians that are coming in each year, the more who are skilled, the more immediate impact in a positive way they can have on the economy is the theory. Now, the reason that skilled migration is, is so important is that it fills holes in the economy where we need those skills 
And training, of course, is the better alternative. It's never a binary choice, of course. You can do both. But to the extent that it would be binary, you'd always rather skill up Australians to fill the holes rather than have to bring in other people to become new Australians. But it's not binary. You do both. And the real benefit of skilled migration is they turn up already fully trained. And, you know, other than just needing to get used to living in Australia, they come with the skills already there, the cost attached to skilling up these individuals already paid for overseas, and you basically steal them from less desirable places to live because Australia is such a great place to live, and then you insert them straight into the economy. And hopefully then in the medium to long term, you're adding to those skills with actual training for Australians to also take up the cudgels in those particular areas. And, and critically, they're, tax, they're taxpayers from day one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, a skill where we might have a shortage, I mean, for a long time there, hairdressing was one that was a shortage. You know, we, there weren't enough apprentice hairdressers in Australia to fill the need to have hairdressers. So that was considered a skilled profession where they would arrive from overseas with the training already in place. You don't have to therefore pay for them to get trained like you would through TAFE qualifications and all the rest of it in Australia because they're already trained. And as you say, they become instant taxpayers because they fill gaps where there aren't a surplus of jobs. There's a deficit of employees. So they're not hitting the unemployment queue, if you like, as long as this is well-structured in the way that it gets done. And that's a relevant point, Hugh. Governments are profoundly capable of screwing things up. So you, you don't want a scenario where there's a lumpiness in the skills, where you bring in a whole bunch of people from overseas just as you don't want to be overtraining in Australia because you think there's going to be skills shortages in particular areas where suddenly there becomes a surplus of people with that. That has traditionally happened over the years in the education space when it comes to school teachers. At the moment, we have a shortfall of school teachers, and so we're needing to bring them in from overseas. That creates its own issues because it's really something that you need to have Australian training for. But if we, we have in the past piled people in to bachelors of education, only to result in there being a surplus of graduates rather than positions in teaching. And it's, it's been lumpy for too many decades in that space. And at the moment, there's a shortage. But if you rewound 10 years, there was a surplus of people with bachelors of education rather than uh, actually the need for people to go into teaching. You have to get it right, is my point. Well, let's uh, park policy for just a second and talk politics. Uh, the visuals of it with Peter Dutton, in fact, no one from the Liberal Party turning up, only the Nationals leader, David Littleproud, from the opposition. How grievous an error is that, if it was indeed an error at all? I think it was a mistake by Peter Dutton and the Liberals to take that view. They, they weren't originally uniformed in that position, shadow ministers, Liberal shadow ministers. Some were saying they, they wouldn't go, others were saying they would go, and in the end, the decision was made that collectively they wouldn't. But that gets undercut when the leader of the National Party goes, I think. So if, if, if you want to make some sort of statement that you think this is just a rubbish talk fest and therefore we're boycotting it, if the whole coalition isn't on the same page, then the Liberals just look like they're being churlish, I think. And particularly so when you then also have all these different moving parts of business who are there, you know, traditional allies of the Liberal side of politics in the business community are all happily there talking about the things that need to happen. And Hugh, when you add to that, that one of the key issues they're talking about that needs to happen is around gender and women and workforce participation for women. You know, what was one of the key drivers to the Liberal Party losing the last election? The perception, whether true or otherwise, that they have a problem with women, that they don't have enough women in their ranks, that they don't care enough about women. That optic is just reinforced by Peter Dutton, you know, that well-known ladies man that he is, uh, not turning up 
to the bloody thing. I just think it's it's a bad look for them to have done it. And if they were going to do it, they at least had to be on the same page as their uh, you know their national party colleagues. Is there not something else going on here which is quite profound? And that is that Dutton in particular has broken ranks with, if you like, big business, uh, the Business Council of Australia, because for a long time during the, the Morrison government and before, but during the coalition years, big business was moving forward, particularly on issues of climate change and climate policy and demanding some certainty in those areas. And on gender matters as well, they were moving forward from where the coalition was. And when it all fell apart, it, it was plain that, that you know, under Morrison, the coalition was being left behind in the debate. And there was a bitterness after the defeat where Dutton seemed to be saying that he'd had it with small businesses' interests, with big businesses' interests, wasn't with big business anymore. Is this a little bit of a, an echo of that and the fact that he can't be bothered being in the room. Obviously, small businesses in the room as well. But that, but that, that you know, it seemed like an eternal friendship between big business, established big corporate business entities in Australia and the Liberal Party might have been actually quite profoundly damaged. Yeah, look, there are, there are definitely issues there. And it's, there are echoes of the breakdown between big and small business at the very early life stages of the Liberal Party uh, at the tail end and, of World War II and, and immediately after it. You know, the whole basis of Robert Menzies leaving the United Australia Party to set up the Liberal Party was that he felt that the UAP had become too close to big business and he wanted to move the Liberal Party into the centre and the mainstream for the so-called forgotten people of Australia. Peter Dutton, straight after the election, tried to use those words and echo Menzies talking about the forgotten Australians, which, of course, forgets that they'd just been in power for nine years. So if they were forgotten, who forgot them? You know, <laughs> only the coalition can have forgotten them if they were forgotten. They were, the, they were the incumbent for nine years, for God's sakes. But anyway, we put that to one side. That was just him trying to evoke Menzies, but not thinking laterally enough about what that looked like. Menzies did it when they were out of power. Uh, and so there was a logic to the forgotten people because you know, they, they were forgotten by a Labor government. But anyway, I, I, I laughed when I heard him say that. On the issue, though, there is this shift potentially afoot because, and the Teals have played into this as well, because the sort of seats, if you like, where a lot of these big business people reside, uh, affluent, traditionally once safe liberal seats, have been picked up by Teals in no small part because of issues on gender and issues on climate, but integrity probably the third notch on that. Uh, and the Liberal Party was, was weak on all of that. And big business, as you say, is big on all of that. Big business want to get to carbon neutrality uh, and they want climate change action. They talk about it, even just from an insurance perspective. And certainly on gender, they're, they're talking about it at the conference and they've long talked about uh, the importance of female participation and gender equality and all the rest of it. The Liberal Party are laggards on both of those fronts in the eyes of a lot of people, but particularly big business leaders as well. So what does it mean, though, Hugh, that the Liberal Party seem to be decoupling themselves from that quotient of the business community? The interesting thing going forward is it means that they may never catch up on the environment and gender because big business urging them to do so doesn't matter. If they are playing into what they think is a mainstream, if you like, you know, apathy about gender and a mainstream apathy about the environment, then they'll just play into it even more. And this is something that liberals have talked to me about privately. Do they need, politically speaking, do they need to pivot to these outer metropolitan once safe Labor seats and try to win over the middle class in those electorates 
such that they can then take more of them to offset losses in one-time traditional safe liberal inner city seats, which is where a lot of these big business types live. It's a fascinating debate to see what becomes of the parties. And it's not as simple as saying that there's that inner and outer divide right around the country. There's also a state-by-state divide. I mean, the numbers are really fascinating, Hugh. You know, in Queensland, Labor went backwards even though it won the election. And the coalition still holds the absolute lion's share of the 30 electorates up there. But then in a state like Victoria, the Liberal Party, it's it's an inverse. The Liberal Party barely hold any seats, just like Labor barely hold any seats in Queensland. The Liberals barely hold any seats in Victoria. And that's where this strategy comes into it. They, I think Peter Dutton sits there and thinks, okay, resource-rich states like Queensland, where we still hold all our seats, and WA, where maybe we can get them back once the McGowan effect dies off by the time of the next election, they're victory points for them. And then I think he looks at a place like Victoria or a place like New South Wales and says, well, we can jag those outer metro seats if we you know, don't sort of care about these nouveau woke issues like the environment and gender that big business is worried about. But then you've got to raise fundraising as an issue because traditionally big business has been an important fundraising vehicle for the Liberal Party. If the Liberal Party is shunning big business, that's going to cost it millions of dollars in the fundraising arms race. I also wonder whether there are other elements involved in this. As you say, there's a kind of a, a division between resource states, if you like, and the, the multicultural states, the more multicultural states, all of Australia is multicultural. But, but one thing that, about Queensland is that overall the education levels, I'm going to pop a lot of flack in this, but overall the education levels in Queensland are lower than you'd see in the averages of the southeast. They also tend to be whiter. This is particularly outside the sort of Brisbane urban cluster, you know, the, if you like, what I call it, greater Brisbane, southeast Queensland. And so there's a kind of a social conservatism as well, whereas the sort of the higher education, multicultural big cities, Sydney and Melbourne, the most obvious ones of them, have a different set of perspectives about everything, that there is a division that's going on there. And, and it is kind of cultural, I think, and educational as well as whether it's simply a resource state. Or not. And, and that does create problems for the Liberal Party. And the other thing about it is if they're going to go out and compete for those, as you say, out of suburban seats and try and haul them in from Labor to offset the ones which have gone down to the Teals and so on, those out of suburban seats have always been a battleground. There's nothing new. You know, they win some, they lose some, but they're always hard-fought battles. I guess, I guess they're trying to widen that ambit, though. So, for example, you know, you have the particular battleground seats in Western Sydney, which, as you say, have long been battlegrounds since, you know, certainly since the Howard years and, and even before that. But they're trying to add the safe Labor seats that would be poxed around those traditional outer marginals are becoming less safe. Similarly to the way that the inner city once safe Liberal seats became less and less safe before the Teals rolled over the top of them. So that's what the Liberals are trying to contemplate. And they're also trying to establish whether that's even achievable. Because one of the things that I found really interesting, I can't remember the political scientist's name now, but there's an Australian political scientist who has broken down the numbers in these marginal seats, just to remind people that whilst the Liberal Party are, are starting to increasingly pick up these outer metro marginal seats from Labor, it's a mistake to think that that means that they, should, that they are more embracing of the working class. They're still winning with the wealthier people in these electorates rather than the, the people who are less affluent in these electorates. It's just that, the, if you like, the, the onward march of the enlargement of cities is bringing greater affluence to the outer metropolitan areas. 
the real working class people in those electorates, and particularly the people who are in the lower socioeconomic bracket, are still overwhelmingly voting Labor. It's just that there are more middle class people and some upper class people in a financial sense also in those electorates so that the Liberals are able to jag it in a way that they once weren't able to. And I think that's an important piece in the puzzle uh, if, if they're going to be sort of trying to think strategically about particular seats. What do you think of the, the possibility people have posited that the next election will see essentially a teal wave in Labor seats, that these highly secure Labor seats, working class seats, uh, you know, the outer, you know, the ones like Wills and, and so on in Scullin and, and things, that they've been Labor for so long that they, and I don't want to make any characterizations of any individual politicians, so I'll withdraw those particular seats, but we know what we're talking about. But the sense that they've been owned by Labor often by not high-performing MPs, and that they're vulnerable to a non-Labour figure with, with exquisite, if you like, uh, working-class roots to come in and essentially be as disruptive to them as the Teals were to the Libs. Yeah, I, I think there's a very real prospect of that happening, but we have to understand the differences. Uh, it, it won't be the same as the Teals, and I don't think the issues will be the same as the Teals. The Teal issues are very much post-materialist issues. And I realise that the environment is becoming a material issue, obviously, but what would have been traditionally once described by a fellow called Ronald Inglehart, uh, the political scientist, as post-materialist issues. And they're in these affluent seats where people care about the environment and they care about integrity and they care about gender and therefore they're affluent enough not to worry about their mortgage and therefore vote on those issues and vote for a teal. It'll be different in the once traditional Labor seats. Same concept, but very different issues. Di Lee uh, is the example of what I see happening there. You know, she picked up Fowler when they tried to parachute Christina Keneally and it didn't work. She was a local, you know, and she was someone who understood the local issues, was on the local council, I believe. But she had liberal connections. Once upon a time, she did. Yeah. But she was always sort of the local who the Liberals embraced as part of their sort of marginal seat strategy rather than the sort of the blue blood liberal that we think of from, from a different electorate. So the liberals did well to embrace her and then they did badly to lose her. She did better without the liberal nomenclature next to her name because a lot of people aren't going to vote liberal in that seat, but they liked the cut of her cloth. So a version of the Teal movement, firstly, they need to find some sort of backer. Uh, and that's hard because they're running on local issues rather than on generic Teal issues like the collective did in those Liberal seats. But something like that I could see happening. So they don't, they don't get a Simon Holmes Accord? No, I don't think so. They don't get a Simon Holmes Accord. And, I mean, part of his interest was not just the issue, but also wrecking the Liberals. And there's, I don't say that disparagingly, there's, there's, there's history there, which is quite interesting uh, on, on that front. You know, he was part of Josh Frydenberg's 200 Club before he set up Climate 200 himself because he was shunned out of it by Josh Frydenberg, as I understand it. So there's wider issues there. But they don't get a Holmes Accord environment, integrity and gender aren't going to be the issues of choice. They're going to be seat by seat local issues. But I can see that happening when Labor's in government if they don't sort of, if you like, answer the call. And they will be facing a war on three fronts if that happens, because they'll face those local community independents in Labor heartlands. They'll obviously have their major party adversary uh, as their main contest, but then they'll also have the Greens in the inner city seats doing to inner city Labor seats what the Teals have done to inner city liberal seats, that's already started and that could well continue. So that becomes a diabolical threesome for Labor to have to deal with if the political climate turns against them. But if they're perceived to be you know, doing well, then none of that happens and they just drive over the top of 
Peter Dutton or whoever is the Liberal opposition leader come the next election? Yes, Dutton's polling numbers are certainly enough to alarm. It's a long way to go, but uh, the hit want to get those up to look like he's... Uh, is in any danger of, re of recovering. Uh, very quickly, on the matter of the stage three tax cuts, these have been perceived as uh, taxes for uh, tax cuts for the rich and for men. Is it a fair criticism? And is Albo right at the moment to say, no, those tax cuts are going through, even though the economic circumstances are vastly different to when they were put through pre-pandemic? It's, it, look, it's a very fair criticism because uh, the, the numbers bear it out. If you're on $200,000, you get a $9,000 tax cut. If you're on $100,000, you get about a $1,400 tax cut. So they're very much targeted towards higher income earners, and that's because they flatten out the tax range. At the moment, you know, you've got a 32.5 cents in the dollar tax range, then a 37, then a 45. All of a sudden, everything between earning 45000 a year and 200000 becomes 30 cents in the dollar rather than having those other gradations that sit there, you know, the 32 and a half ends at 120 at the moment and 37 starts and then the 45 starts at 180 at the moment. They're going to abolish all of that and make it 45,000 to 200,000 all just pay 30 cents in the dollar when those stage three tax cuts come into effect. We've got to remember they've already been legislated. But uh, here's the issue for me. I, I think that's too flat. There probably needs to be one other tier in the middle of that. Um, and ideally you bring the 30 down and then you put the 30 up for the other tier so that it all becomes parity. I'm in favour conceptually of reducing income taxes as long as you increase wealth taxes. And Hugh, this is the problem with the stage three tax cuts. They've been legislated, they gut the budget. It's not bad to reduce dependency on income taxes. We should be doing that. That's what most countries in the world do. We are overly dependent on income taxes and it stifles work-based incentives, but it's too flat and it has to happen in conjunction with more wealth taxes. And that's why we need a bloody tax summit rather than a skill summit because you've got to do it all holistically. On Labor, will they, where, where will they go? At the moment, they're not going to change their mind on stage three tax cuts, but they've given themselves some wiggle room. That's because they're trying to weigh up at the moment, what's the lesser of evils? Let this thing happen, even though it'll gut the budget and it's unpopular in large sections of the community, or reverse it and then be called liars from the last election campaign because they specifically promised not to reverse it. And this is important. They didn't just promise not to reverse it years ago when it was legislated. They were asked about it in the election campaign shortly before the 21st of May this year, and they said, we will not reverse it. Circumstances have not changed since then. Interest rates were going up then. Inflation was an issue. Cost of living was an issue. And they specifically ruled out changing it. So I will hold them to account if they backflip on that, because then they were liars for the purpose of getting elected in what they said, or if they weren't lying, they were prepared to break the promise and they did it very quickly when circumstances haven't changed. They never should have made that commitment during the election campaign, is my point, Hugh. Yeah, and that clip will be in everyone's back pocket for the moment that that gets reversed. <laughs> very quickly, I, I, just that I'm interested, you say a wealth tax, what are the most obvious options for a wealth tax? Inheritance taxes? Or, or do you tax property in a different way? How, how does it work? I think death duties is, is a legitimate thing. I think a lot of the stuff that Bill Shorten tried to do, you know, and, and this is why we're in this conundrum now, because they, they, they legislated income tax cuts uh, with nobody going down the wealth tax argument. So you can increase capital gains taxes. You, you can uh, have you know, property taxes of different sorts, including on the family home, potentially, depending on how you restructure it. This also requires federation reform because we're talking about taxes that cut between the Commonwealth and the states about that. But the big ones are death duties slash inheritance taxes, capital gains tax adjustments, 
because there's too many concessions there. Uh, look at super as well at the wealthier end of super. Uh, at the moment, you know, you only pay 15 cents in the dollar tax on super earnings after your first 3.6 million as a couple invested and what that earns. You pay no tax on the earnings of that 3.6 million at all. And then anything above that, you only pay 15 cents in the dollar. So, you know, wealth taxes are something that I think need to be looked at because we don't have enough of them in this country relative to what we have in income taxes. Consumption taxes is another one. You can have affluent good consumption taxes, for example. All right. Well, all debates that are not being had right at the moment at the political level. <laughs> PVO, we've probably talked too long, but uh, always good to chat with you. Good to chat with you about policy, yeah, for, for a bit of a change rather than just the grubby politics. For a change. <laughs> Talk to you soon. See you, mate. been listening to the professor and the hack a network 10 podcast to make sure you don't miss any episodes subscribe in your favorite podcast app thanks for listening